You are now listening to the Elite Podcast by Wiser. Okay, so today I'm sitting down with Harrison Rose, uh, co-founder of Paddle. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. You're the first founder that I've had on a podcast, so I'm really keen to... No pressure. Yeah, right? no pressure, yeah. <laughs> to learn what it's all about from, um, you know, inception to trying to build out to a sales function. Uh, but you've had an impressive run, so I'll be looking, you've been on a Deloitte Fast 50 twice? Three times. Three, Three times, times, I think. There we go, I should do some Marketing will kill me if I've got it wrong. Yeah, as well. yeah. so I, I saw that this year come up, which is amazing. Uh, top 100 Britain's fastest growing business as well. 25 million pound of funding. Yeah. Um, 150 employees. Yeah, 150. It, it changes a lot, but yeah. around 150. And pretty much almost every year, like tripling in revenue. Uh, yeah. 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 So yeah. Uh, it's been an impressive journey. I've seen you guys on LinkedIn and uh, I was keen to kind of get you onto this podcast. Mm-hmm. So welcome. Um, I think like to start off, it'd be really interesting to know who Paddle are. Yeah. Um, do you want to give us a bit of a overview? Sure. Um, so Paddle are a SaaS commerce platform. So by that, we help software companies like run and grow their business. And by run, we're taking care of everything from checkout to payments, taxes, fraud, billing, subscriptions, etc. And by grow, it's utilizing all the data that we collect on these software companies to help them do things like price more effectively or change their value-based metric or move into a new market, for example. So we're working with software companies all over the world um, and helping them hopefully be more successful and, and ensure that it's not things like their billing stack or their infrastructure, which is holding back their, their growth. Got it. And so these software companies didn't have anything like this before to help? Or what would they typically be doing? Yeah, sure. Um, so typically we're working with software companies that have reached some scale um, and they've cobbled together a number of different tools to try and sell their product globally. They're working with PayPal and a bunch of different other payment methods and merchant accounts. They've got something and some people handling tax. They've built some logic around subscription billing. And at some point, these things start to fall over. Often when they're trying to change their go-to-market actually, like move into a new region or start to enter larger customers, they keep tacking onto this like what we call piecemeal kind of stack of, of products. Yeah. Um, and everyone in the company hates it and hates doing so. Um, and at some point they rip that out and, and replace it with Paddle. We could certainly work with what we call like Greenfield software companies, so people launching for the first time, and we most certainly do. Um, but they often need a lot of education about how, how bad this is going to become over time. And it's much easier to speak to people who are already on fire, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. So like, looking at you, obviously young, right? First time founder, first time gig, or did you do something? Yeah, before? yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, we, I certainly dabbled in lots of things when I was growing up, I think as, as many of us would, and I'm sure the listeners did too, from graphic design, which I'm sure I'd be very ashamed of if anyone ever found, um, through to some kind of, We'll try and find it and play it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some forms of paddle and, and those ideas kind of evolving over time as well. But in reality, this is pretty much the first thing we've ever done alongside the other founder as well. It's such a niche thing to go after, right? Mm-hmm. Helping software companies with, with, with yeah. that problem. How did you find it? Let's go back to the beginning. Like, Talk me through the journey yeah. of like how Paddle was invented. People often phrase that question more harshly than you as well. Okay. It's just like, okay. what on earth are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Like, what teenager? From school, we knew this problem was yeah. out there, and so we went yeah. after it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I met the other founder, Christian, when he was trying to build some software himself. Again, let's not talk about the quality of that software because we don't want to embarrass anyone. Um, but it was an invoicing tool. And what he found himself doing was that as much as he built this invoicing tool and wanted to sell it, he was almost building this other product just to be able to sell it sell the product globally, I guess. And we often think of software as this amazing thing because you build a product, you can sell it globally, like you hear all these amazing success stories. Actually, it's becoming increasingly difficult to actually sell a product and and, and go to market, if that makes sense. 
So we thought about how could you do that more effectively and how do we solve this problem? How do we level the playing field so that great products can be shipped and sold without barriers to entry, I guess. So our first hypothesis was like a marketplace. Like when you think about marketplaces, they do generally make selling software pretty easy. You build a thing, you throw it at the marketplace, you become a millionaire, everything's amazing, right? And so we built this marketplace, we had tons and tons of content on there, a ton of independent software, as well as games, eBooks, you name it, it was on there, um, but I wasn't super successful. Um, we made a, a bunch of sales, sure, um, but people didn't really just want another marketplace who were kind of competing with Amazon, Google Play, you name it, some big people out there, which, yeah, yeah. which ain't too easy. Yeah. A Christian's joke that he often makes on the on podcasts and things, which is a little bit exaggerative, is that we'd have made more sales going door to door kind of thing. Like Got it wasn't working very well. Yeah. Um, at one point, we noticed sales going up though um, on the marketplace or what we thought was the marketplace. What was really happening was independent software developers who had their products on this marketplace were getting a product listing. They had a checkout on that product listing. They'd copy that checkout link and then stick it on their own site um, because it was a really, and direct their own traffic through to that checkout link because it was a really easy way for them to get a checkout which accepted a bunch of different payment methods for them, that accepted different currencies and languages, handled tax and fraud for them, for example, delivered the products without them having to build that infrastructure themselves. We realized that there was value in the infrastructure, not necessarily this kind of customer facing marketplace play. Yeah. So we dropped the marketplace and just started selling the infrastructure um, and have been doing that for the last oh, seven years or so. So you and Christian, were your friends at school or how did you know each other? So we met through my best friend. He was actually meant to hire him, which is very oddly. He's still okay. my best friend today. He, he recently moved to Bristol, which I'm still very bitter about. I hope he hears this. Um, <laughs> so he was meant to hire my best friend. Um, very weirdly, that best friend, his name is Will, ended up working for what became our first angel investor. Um, so it all became very uh, kind of worked yeah, out. Weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's cool. We got introduced. And so, what drew you to like, the entrepreneurial roots rather than perhaps going to uni or did you go uni or like what's the? Um, I don't know. I don't think I really had any idea what I was doing. Yeah. And um, so the summer that I was due to go to university, um, I we raised uh, seed funding from a guy called Mark Pearson. And because of that, I deferred for a year, basically, and, and it was easier to justify that to things like parents with, with that backing from a from a proper investor. From anyone who's trying to find seed funding, so it interrupts, like, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, I'm not sure that it's also the most like repeatable way. Like, I'm yeah. not sure it's the best. Like, we went to a hackathon that he was hosting. Um, he was running a company called My Voucher Codes at the time, um, and went and took part in this hackathon, but also pitched Mark the idea of paddle as a marketplace and how we were going to solve the selling of digital products and centralize it and so on and so forth that he really bought into um, and then he, he backed us and, and bought us out of main name and things like this just get yourself out there that's yeah. the, something yeah, that's exactly. repeatable yeah and at that stage like at seed stage in terms of funding really that investor is backing you as the founders your team and the idea and they know that there's not tons of execution you might have some customers or some revenue but it's really getting that person to buy into the, the pain that you want to solve and confidence that you are the people to, to solve it as well. Got it. Did you have a clear strategy from day one? Like, did you have a good idea of like, this is the type of culture we want to build or like the size we want to get to or the exit plan? Yeah, I think um, some of this Christian certainly thought of more than me. I think when I went into this world, I frankly knew nothing about VC, nothing about scaling software companies and very much fell into this more than Christian who very much has that kind of take over the world vision without blinking in his eye, kind of terrifying state. He's an amazing, amazing yeah. guy. Um, but in terms of things like go to market and how you actually execute upon this stuff, 
for us as first time founders or, or culture, we literally have never done this before. So we very much were learning as we went along and, and we, we didn't know this stuff when we started. And I think the, the bigger lesson I think to be had here or to share is that at some point, no matter what you've done before, you'll reach a stage whereby you haven't, haven't done what it is that you're doing right now. You haven't run a company of X scale or hired Y number of people. You will at some point outgrow your previous experience. And I think for us, that was right at the beginning, but this is gonna be true for everyone at some point. And I think the real lesson that, or the way I've approached this and, and the thing that I've preached before is that if you're a founder, I, I tell this to the executive team and to the whole business, frankly, that we're in a software company in an environment whereby we're growing it incredibly quickly. That's the nature of our business, the nature of our go-to-market, that the market that we're in itself is changing constantly. And unless you're able to get energized by and want to kind of ferociously learn and improve, you're literally going to get left behind. So uh, unless that's you, I think, like it will be very difficult to be a founder of a company that's growing so fast because you ultimately need to keep up with, if not grow faster than the actual company itself in order to do it justice. And for us, like that was doubly hard because we knew nothing at the start. So I had to grow, learn super, super quickly. But at some point that is gonna be true for everyone. And you really need to put the pressure on yourself to grow and improve in order to to keep up with those demands. It seems like at the start, you both had the ambition and that's why you are where you are right now, right? Is this a surprise to see the size you're at now? Or is it kind of like, no, this is kind of like, we hope to get there. That's where our goal was anyway. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, we're both cred- incredibly ambitious. Perhaps naively so, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think what I certainly am bad at, and I think this is true of Christian, I'm not sure it's true of other founders and something we could get better at, is probably actually just taking a moment and looking around and actually considering what, what we've done um, and what we could do. I think we talk about more. But I think a lesson that we've learned in growing the company to the 150 people we are today is actually sometimes people need you to stop, look around and really congratulate them on, on what's been achieved because it's so easy as a founder to want more. So I mean, like we, to do, yeah. Exactly. We may have just closed that X million dollar a year customer, but where's the next one? Where's the bigger one? Like you need to put that pressure on yourself in order to succeed and grow at the rate that, that you want to as a founder. But at the same time, you should, I guess, self-congratulate to some extent and pat yourself on the back. But, but even more so and more importantly, show that thanks and that gratitude and energize the team about what it is that you've achieved. And we could have probably done a better job of that over the last kind of seven years or so. Got it. Okay. Well, a spin on this podcast is about um, sales and, and revenue generating. So you took that on that role as a co-founder, right? In terms of like everything non-technical, it was to go after the commercial side, yeah. try and build it up. How long did it take you to make your first bit of revenue into the business? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you're exactly right. So Christian very much ran kind of products and engineering for us. He, he's still heavily involved in, in product today. And I ran everything commercial. Um, at the time that was sales, success, marketing, all bundled into one. Um, and they became more and more distinct as, as we grew as a company. And um, we were revenue generating from day one. We kind of had been trying to solve this problem of, of selling software in many different guises for a long time, Christian and I pre-C um, uh, funding. So we were used to trying to make money for ourselves. Christian left school uh, way before me, so had to make a living for himself, I yeah. guess. So we started making revenue from pretty much from day one. Um, and I think that's a really good habit to get into because- was it, it seems like easy. What was you doing just to get customers buying? So we, we were used to uh, packaging, well, 
it was like B2B2C at the start when we were at Marketplace. We were very used to, from our experience and, and the things we've been dabble, dabbling with before Paddle, to partner with software companies or digital content creators at the time, um, get their products in front of a audience of customers and drive sales for that product. Um, as I said, we eventually realized that the complexities of selling software are a little bit more complex than that and maybe a bigger opportunity for us. But So that, that was the idea in, in, in the Marketplace days. I think as we went B2B, things are more interesting and I think probably more applicable to kind of the audience out there. And the things that I think you need to do to start making revenue very quickly, I often think about this in terms of an outbound sales lens because we've been outbound sales driven since day one and marketing is a much bigger part of what we do today. But you need to quite quickly understand who it is you're serving, what value are you delivering them in terms of jobs, pains and gains how do I map the market of those people really quickly? Um, as in generate that long list of people who actually this is applicable for. And then once you have that, how, how do I deliver them or work towards a replicable message that they respond to? Yeah. And, and so on and so forth. And, and it really is a repeatable step-by-step -step process. You map the market, you deliver them a consistent message, you iterate on that message. Um, and then once you've got that repeatability, you hire someone to deliver that repeatable message over and over again, and then hand over to you the later stage in the sales process. As soon as that's repeatable, you hire someone to do that, if that makes sense. It's, it. it's really, you have to be very methodical and very process driven, I think, if you're gonna be able to turn this into, if you have any hope of turning this into a machine in the future. Did I ask it was like a natural instinct DNA of like, this makes sense? I, I'm, to, to some extent, both, but I think a mistake we did make uh, or let me rephrase it. There is a ton of amazing resources out there on yeah. this stuff. Um, I, I think even still today, for every single person who joins the company in the sales role, um, we deliver them or give them a copy of, or offer them a copy of Predictable Revenue by Aaron Ross, who I've had the pleasure to speak to many times since then, and Spin Selling, because it's one that I like and, and, and helps people on how to structure sales conversations uh, in a really effective way. Um, so there's great books and resources out there on this stuff and people who've done it before and there's, there's science behind this. So I, I really like the guys from Winning by Design as well. I don't know if we can put them in footnotes or something, but they're really cool. So there are a lot of great resources that I would certainly encourage anyone to read when, when getting started on this. Um, the thing that I think, so, so read this stuff, try and apply it. You're, you're always going to have to have a flavor of this. You don't have to do it exactly by the book, but do what, what works for your business. But the, the other thing that we did or the mistake that we made, I find them a lot easier to talk about, um, is having never done this before, so often we thought, thought we were reinventing or inventing something for the first time. Uh, we, we thought we were encountering this huge problem that no one had ever seen before or knew, had any idea how to fix. When we finally fix it, we go to our board, be like, oh my God, look, look at this amazing thing that we've done. And they kind of just sit there and look at you like you're completely mad and just be like, I, you just hired some like pre-sales engineers. Like this is a thing that everybody does. Yeah. And so the thing that I'd encourage people to do is use a network, grow a network, speak to people who have done this before. Because most of the time, depending on your scale, someone has done what you've done yeah. before. Yeah. And, and you can really accelerate that. Level. Especially your first year, you don't have time to waste. Exactly. Like, you exactly. can't like waste three months of trying something out. It's yeah. like, if someone's done this before, go figure it out from them and <laughs> adopt it into your business. Use right? their mistakes yeah, so you yeah. don't have to, right? Yeah. So do things like try and grab, get a mentor really early. Like yeah. I, I got a mentor around the time of Series A, I recently had the pleasure of hiring him into our business in the last few months, which is really cool. But the amount 
that accelerated your, your learning is really cool. I think another founder I spoke to, I, I can't remember who it is, so sorry for who, whoever, whichever friend this is, he called it Adam and Eving it. It's like, if you've never done something before, like you think you're inventing this cool thing, but in reality, like, nah, like Got it. everyone has done this before. Got it. Um, yeah. What keys would you um, give away or would you say is um, you implemented in the first year to make it kick off? Because that first year is crucial, right? So I know you mentioned about you know, having the right process in place. Mm-hmm. But like, what else would you say as a business? Anything you did to the culture or like marketing, branding? I think we went through that quite big transition in the, what well, seems like years ago now, right? It was a good seven, eight years ago, that move from like the, the marketplace to the B2B. And then it was at that point that we started building out these scalable processes. But I think there's probably learning in that in terms of, in order to know in the first year or in the early days if you're doing the right thing, a, a number of things have to be true. Like you have to be incredibly close to your customer and deeply understand what it is that they're doing or why they're speaking to you or what pains they have, what jobs you're removing from them or what gains your product is delivering. Um, but you also need to be humble enough that your initial hypothesis might have been wrong. Yeah. So when I think about our experience right at the start, like we thought this marketplace was a way to solve problems for these customers. But we analyzed them, we spoke to them and realized that we are actually solving a pain for these people, but, but not via the marketplace. And you have to be humble enough to be like, oh, this initial vision that I had maybe wasn't quite right, but there absolutely is a huge opportunity here and a huge amount of people crying out for this, this product that I can build and, and I'm gonna go and do so. And it's at that point that you can get really methodical and process driven because you know what these customers look like, you know what, the, what you can do for them and, and thus repeatedly go and sell to them. But it, we had some really difficult conversations even with board being like, just this marketplace thing isn't isn't the right thing for us to do. Yeah, and you need to be humble enough and and I guess bold enough to be like, actually, we're going to make a change. Here. How did you know? Was it just data? Uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. So we, we had a bunch of content on the marketplace, and we were seeing more sales taking place directly via these checkouts that we weren't even really making it that easy to pull off the platform. Um, yeah, pretty much, and analyzing that, and, and do speak to customers. I I can't emphasize enough that whether you're an outbound sale driven organization or not. There's a lot of interesting thought leadership out there that you should have a, a few sales reps anyway, constantly calling customers and speaking to them or customer development. And in the early days, that's both of those things were probably just you as a founder to really understand why people are using your product, how it could be better, what you could be doing next. And you don't have to take all of those things uh, by the by or by the book, exactly as they're saying, yeah. but constantly build on that understanding to inform what it is you're going to do next. And I think we didn't realize how lucky we've been that because we're outbound sales driven from day one, you have this constant feedback loop uh, that you absolutely need to interpret and mold into and ensure it's compatible or congruent with the vision that you have. Um, but I can't emphasize how, how useful that was for us in the early days. We'll get onto that machine in a minute, but like, I'm keen to know like how much of like a formalized process you had at the start as well. Yeah. In comparison to like, what it looks like now. But like, in terms of like winning new customers, supporting <clears throat> those customers that have signed up, yeah. You know, then just a long-term play, Probably. account managing, like how sure. much of that was defined? Sure. I think a mistake people make actually is over-architecting what that looks like in the early days. Like I see some people who have like no customers yet, like setting up Salesforce in some inc- insane way or spending thousands of thousands of dollars on like something like Salesforce or collecting absolutely tons of data on every single customer, which they have no idea how they're going to use. And I think there is something to be said for get yourself out there and win some customers work out what during that process is always the same and start building systems around that repeatable process, I guess. But in the early days, it was very, um, 
how would I describe it? Uh, basic, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was it was building that list of addressable customers. Personally, it was just me contacting those people manually over email, um, working on messaging and, and building. We we bought a tool which allowed us to, to track response rates on like sequences we're sending out. Saw which of those are working very well. As soon as we had a repeated way to do that with really high response rates. Um, it's at that point that it becomes more efficient for someone else that's not me to be doing that. And it's at that point you hire your first person. And having done that, they start doing the outreach. You, you make sure what you're doing is repeatable and they start handing over all of these warm leads ready to be sold to you at that point and start doing that yourself. And then you work out what's reasonable there and, and then hire someone to do that. But you need to try and build tooling and process around those experiences, I guess. Yeah. Like what, what is it I'm actually doing? Can I make this more efficient? Does it make sense for someone to be doing this full time? Um, how could I set this person up with the right tooling to be more efficient at what they're doing? And really importantly, when does if we're gonna be doing this for the long term, like are we actually tracking this in the right way? Okay. Like we, we did things like, I'm not sure how to granular enough sales funnel set up in our CRM until too late so that our analysis of that was limited. So it is really hard to strike this balance between over-optimizing or over-architecting in the early days at at the expense of actually just getting out there and selling and and regretting not setting some of this stuff up at the right time. When was the first hire for sales in particular? Quite late. Um, I hired a SDR, I mean, we went through f- flavors of business development, but a fully fledged kind of SDR about two years into the business. Oh, wow. Um, so I had been doing end-to-end sales process pretty much myself with some help from things like these biz dev roles, which didn't really know what we were doing or what they were for. We just set them up for failure, frankly, in the early days. But we hired an SDR about two years into the business who knew exactly what they were doing, exactly the customers they were going after, and exactly the message he was due to deliver. So did some hires that were mistakes because you had no idea what he's doing and mm-hmm. what was the main like flaws there yeah. because... It's probably that repeatability wasn't there. Like, I think you have a responsibility as a founder to go and work out what works um, because you are genuinely best placed to do that. Like, you know your product. You should know your product better than anyone, uh, at least at the start. You should know what you want to achieve better than anyone. And you should be able to interact with these customers on a level where you can deeply understand why it is they're even talking to you in the first place. And only once you've worked out a way, like, until you can write a list of instructions on this is what you should be doing day to day and this is what success looks like for someone, you're kind of throwing them under the bus a little bit in the early days because they're going to find it really difficult to work this stuff out. You will find superstars. I'm sure some people will find people who can work it out for you, but it's hard. It's hard for them to do that. And, and these people we just hired in biz dev because we thought we should have it and they don't know what they're doing. It's a little, little bit of that and like ego, right? We want to grow, so let's just get more people in so it looks bigger and better. Yeah. And when my friends see it, it's like, oh my God, you got like 12 people in your sales team, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. reality is you probably do quite a lot yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we actually probably went too far in doing a lot of the stuff ourselves and really had to put that right late in the process. So we were a team of about 20, up to about 20 people for uh, five years. And we were growing at the rates of talks about tripling in size often. Um, just despite the team not growing any larger and larger and what we were constantly doing is thinking about who we're selling to how can we be more efficient in that how can we scale what we're doing with the team that we had and um, to the extent where I think we left it too late to think more carefully about hiring plans and the impact this would have on our, our performance and our success and which is again something that a second time founder just isn't going to make the mistake of and um, which led to us kind of snapping back to reality in 2018 whereby 
we started that year, yeah, about 25, 30 people, I think, and hired 100 people that year, because in reality, we probably should have been hiring those people gradually throughout this process um, and not expecting more and more of a small group of individuals. Um, and, but yeah, been hiring and building out this into, into more people probably a little bit earlier in the process. Any first time founder that's listening to this um, and they're looking for their first commercial hire, what advice would you give like to go for an SDR versus maybe a head of sales or like just an account exec? Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing question. That's one I'm quite passionate about. I think I'm probably biased though, having done this in a very specific way, but and I see some real contrary advice on this. And every company's different, right? Of so, course, yeah. of course. Because there's gonna be some companies whereby the guy, you can only sell to 50 people in the market, the guy knows every single one of them and can get you through the door. Like that's super, super valuable. It wouldn't work in our case. But I see a lot of advice from coming out of VCs even to hire this head of sales as VP sales really, really early in the process. Almost like, yeah, before you found any product market fit to some extent. And, and like I was saying earlier, to, to me personally, I feel like that isn't, doesn't often work or won't often work for, for companies. I think a head of sales to me or a VP sales to me is their skill is taking the work an early stage team have done and scaling it. Like this is what they're there to do. A head of sales isn't to work out, isn't there to work out product market fit, or or influence product roadmap to the extent like a founder probably should. They can help with messaging. They can tell you the feedback customers are getting. You need to generate strong feedback loops there. But there is there's no way. And this is a piece of advice our, our board have given us before. It's like the very best salesperson like wants the, to join the company with the easiest thing to sell because it's literally their job to sell it. And if you have absolute product market fit, a bunch of warm customers ready to buy your product, like their life is a lot easier and they can build a machine around making it as efficient as possible to go out and sell to this market that's ready to buy. But that's their skill. Their skill isn't go and work out how enough we're gonna turn this into a business. Yeah, that's not their yeah. job. And so I think you kind of have a responsibility to go and have those conversations, get yourself out there, get in front of customers and, and deeply understand your value prop and reach some predictability before hiring for that for that role and, and the the excuse i think i've heard from some founders and it isn't an excuse is like well i don't know how to sell like i've never sold before and it's like well, well no you haven't but you're also trying to run a business and build a product and you need to speak to customers all yeah. to do. think about it as customer development rather than selling but heck if you if you solve the the, the needs of or the things you uncover during that conversation they're probably going to buy your product start raising money exactly getting to believe exactly. in you what you're doing exactly. right yeah so what advice would you give in terms of like building a team over a period of time now. Yeah. At the start, you're saying you need to have a person that's been willing to come in and <laughs> learn it with you and find the fit for the marketplace. Yeah. Whether that's an SDR or an AE, perhaps yeah. not a head of sales, but like how do you kind of formulate that kind of sales structure over time? Yeah, it's really hard. I think you should hire into, hire for, let me take a second, sorry. I think, yeah, at the start, I was doing everything end to end during the sales process. And over time, you hyper-specialize and hyper-specialize and hyper-specialize. And the reason you normally do that is for efficiency. So at the point it makes sense for someone's full-time job to be just you know, booking meetings or just doing the sales demos or just onboarding customers, it's at that time that it's, it's the time to start removing that responsibility from someone else and just making it a sole thing that somebody does. In simplifying it in that way for a, an employee, it's really easy for them to know what they're working towards, what success looks like. And the more indecision you put in people's minds as to how they should be spending their time, the, the more difficult their, their job becomes. But most people don't have the luxury in terms of funds or resources 
to go out day one and have an SDR team, a bunch of account executives, some solutions engineers, and an onboarding team or launch managers. P people don't have that luxury and, and nobody should go into this thinking that they will. At the start, that's one role. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you will cut this up in, into many at the time that you either have the capital to do so and or it makes sense for you, it will be more efficient for you to, to cut up in that way. But in order to do so, yeah, you need the capital. You also need an understanding of exactly what each part of that and journey is, is going to be doing. Guess what is their actual role and responsibility? What is their actual KPI? Yeah, um, and it's showing like one plus one equals three in a way, mm -hmm. right? Not mm -hmm. just, it's just exactly. spreading the wealth out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are different characters. Like there, there are going to be reps that you hire who are more than willing and understanding to be like, we're kind of working this out right now. Like this is the quota that we think we're, we're setting, and this is what we believe to be true. We may get this wrong, but you have a chance to really formulate this with us and really define this process with us. That's a really interesting point. I get this a lot from like first time founders, like yeah. what targets do I set? Mm -hmm. Like how do we work out the commission structure? Mm -hmm. and, and you'll get it wrong, like is the answer. It's like you, you will probably get it wrong. Yeah. Um, because you have no data to, to go on, right? Uh, and that's what should inform these decisions. So based on the data that you have and the experience you have of how you're selling, you have to make your best attempt, but be open, be transparent with the people you're hiring about where you're at in this process and sell them on the idea of formulating this um, and be fair with them. Like if they've gone and closed a ton of business and haven't been rewarded for it fairly, reward them fairly. Like, and if you're that transparent with these people, that they'll respect that first and foremost and be obliged and willing to come and work for you, I think. But there is definitely a different type of rep who wants to come into this fully formed playbook business that's absolutely humming and can really thrive in that environment and just go and execute versus the person who's going to come in and really get energy out of working things out. And I see this and they're very different types of characters to manage both in terms of day-to-day -day management of them and even career development and things like that. Okay, so what about bringing in the VP or uh, head of sales? When yeah. was the right point for you? So we probably did this too late. Okay. Uh, so I ran sales and success for the first five years of the company, or eight years old now. Um, Martin joined us around uh, four and a half years into that as well. Um, we probably should have done so sooner. Like I was getting pulled all over the place, frankly. Um, we, it took us 18 months to find that person as well. Um, it's really, really critical, a really critical hire that you don't want to get wrong, the VP sales. Badly, I'm very happy with the VP sales we've since hired. So be mindful of how long that's going to take. Uh, we had to use an exec search firm in, in order to do that because there's not that many candidates out there who are genuinely incredible, going to be game changing for your business. Um, what was you looking for? Did you know what you were looking for or did you change your mind over that period of time? Hence, it been 18 months. Yeah, it's really difficult. I think we wanted someone who had sold into SaaS companies and software companies before, probably worked in one, could could deeply empathize and understand the the challenges we were solving for our customers, and ultimately had a track record of scaling businesses of the current size we were at to where our ambitions were, I guess. And, and the challenge in hiring these people, I think, is actually you want to hire someone who is a stretch in that you're kind of you're, you're selling to them hard for them to join your business because frankly, they could get a job, at a bigger business or a, a larger stage than you're at. And because you failed in hiring that VP or that C-level person, if within a year, the company's outgrown them. Like that is literally a measure of failure for that hire. And um, you want someone who is gonna last at least 24 months in my view, and hopefully has the ceiling to go way, way beyond that. But if you're spending a huge amount of money and time hiring a VP to scale, 
where you're at, they have to be able to do that over a, a decent period of time. Otherwise, it's just, just not worth the effort. And how did you find like delegating that responsibility to someone else? Yeah, uh, I mean, at this, the point where we're at after... Uh, are you still very much involved in uh, that? Well, <laughs> where we're at after like six years was like, I didn't really have a choice to be fair. Yeah. Like, I was getting pulled all over the place. So it was very easy for them to step in and just pick up the things I, I just couldn't do or drop. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting and, and difficult. Um, and it had, had been navigating that over time, but you've hired that person, right? You, you have to fundamentally believe and trust in them and you have to empower them to make the decisions that they want to make. And if you, if you don't do that, have you, have you hired somebody you believe in and trust? Like th this is the measure of this for me. It's like, do what you want, Adam. I've just hired you as VP sales. Sure, let's talk about big decisions you're making and let's bounce ideas off one another. But ultimately I've hired you because you know this better than me. Like this is literally why you're here. So you should be empowered to go and make those decisions. It's, it's my view. Sounds idealistic, but you have to get there. And then did you set like clear milestones that you want to achieve as a business and, and bring them into that decision making process as well? Yeah, uh, any good VP, for example, will absolutely look at your financial plan and look at your track record of hitting that in the past, as well as your confidence in hitting in the future and assess you. This is much them selling you as, as you are selling them, quite yeah. frankly. And any VP worth their salt will request a bunch of data on how it is that you've been performing. And this kind of harks back to my point previously, just like if you're hiring a VP sales who has none of that data available to them, there are some out there who want to go on that journey from very early stages. Most will want to be going into a business where they can scale a machine that they can see how they can turn this into an absolutely huge business. And yeah. Um, yeah, and in terms of milestones for him, I guess he's responsible for top line revenue basically and, and hitting that financial plan. Um, but there, are, there were absolutely um, cultural improvements and, and so on and so forth that we also talked talk to this person about pretty significantly. What did you learn about raising investment and knowing your sales numbers? Like what advice yeah. did you give or what yeah, mistakes yeah. did you make? Yeah, we always make many mistakes. Um, <laughs> That's why it's so good to have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, raising investment has been fun. It's very time consuming. I'm very happy that I have Christian alongside me as a co-founder who takes on a lot of that responsibility. And I try to take on a lot of the, the executional stuff day to day, uh, particularly on the commercial side. It's nice that we've got two founders actually, because it genuinely is hugely time consuming to raise money. And this is a constant process. It's not something that you do once every two years. You're constantly updating potential investors. You're constantly keeping those relationships warm so that when you do want to raise funds, the process doesn't take you six months, it takes you three because the, the person you want to raise from you've been giving data to forever. Yeah. Um, and you've taken them on the journey and all the things that you've learned. And that's really important. But the things, the, t the easiest takeaways I think I could, I could probably share with you are about probably what I perceive to be expected of you at each one of those stages as, a, as someone in the commercial team or owning go-to-market as I did for the first six years or so, is that seed has nothing to do with go-to-market, the seed fund that you raised, frankly. It's, as I said earlier, belief in you as, as founders or a founder in, in executing a problem, upon the problem that you, you've identified. And, and that vision, the scale of that vision and that ambition. At Series A, where I've seen people fail is that at that point, you need to have a set of customers who are absolute advocates of what it is that you're doing. But really, really importantly, they need to be talking about the same things. You need to have a set of customers who are seeing the same value prop in what it is that you're doing and can talk confidently and articulately about how you've helped them solve X problem. And that problem needs to kind of be similar among them. Otherwise, 
you, maybe you don't really have product market fit here. Have you just built something for like five customers? This is actually scalable. And the product market fit piece is the, really thing, is the thing to really think about at Series A. Um, at Series B, it's very much, they're expecting you to be on your way to this well-defined, uh, well-segmented kind of machine, if you like. You, you're not gonna have all of your metrics completely in place. Not everything's gonna be perfect in our, in our example we really had this outbound sales engine kind of humming and um, we were still working out some things on marketing for example and uh, that's expected but you need some level of predictability some level of if, of if i hire this many people this is going to be the outcome um by series c which we're going to be going for uh in 2020 uh probably over in the states you, you need absolute predictability yeah because um, you're talking about big sums at that point and how do you go about finding out a number like how big can this go like how many employees can we have like yeah, uh, that is the task of many people. Yeah. Uh, we're even doing our 2020 plan right now, and I'm sat in rooms with our VP sales, uh, CFO, CEO, uh, and the, the mentor we recently hired as a chief commercial officer to work this stuff out. There's tons of stuff that factors into this, total addressable market, how many people can you actually hire during this period? Um, you will build big, complex financial models to, to predict this stuff. Um, the, the thing that I've been told um, which I don't, again, don't know if we've done necessarily the best job of is that you will plan, you should hit that plan if you're gonna raise money successfully, um, but it, it can change. Like if, if, if you've made mistakes, it's better to put that right and make and articulate that to say the board so that there's confidence in you that you understand what's going on, what's changed, you've presented a new plan that you are then hitting as opposed to missing something over and over again without having done the work and understanding what is or isn't working. Got it. So you mentioned a few times about the outbound strategy, which was like super effective at the start. Yeah. Like what can you give away? Like what's the yeah, magic yeah. formula that everyone should be looking at in terms yeah, yeah. of trying to get as many clients coming as possible, keeping on top of them? Yeah, so we approach this in a very different way to pretty much anyone we've ever spoken to before. And this is, this is that balance I was talking about earlier, whereby sometimes in approaching something completely fresh, You've, you waste so much time because someone's done it before and they can teach you a bunch of lessons and you can learn from them. But there are benefits too in that you maybe just approach something completely differently and, and quite uniquely. And I think that is something that we did specifically in terms of demand generation in the early days. Um, we were running a business that nobody had heard of. Um, frankly, the market didn't even know that our operational model existed or they could even use a product like ours. There was absolutely no interest or organic search in what it is that we were doing whatsoever. So very quickly, as a, a single sales rep or the person responsible, responsible for, for growing revenue, I, I needed a list of customers that I could sell to. Having developed this understanding of the, the value that we could deliver to software companies of a, a certain size at that stage. Um, and we very quickly had to get very, very good at finding those software companies. And this has really evolved into some of the, probably some of the secret source of the organization, some of the success that we've had. And um, to cut a long story short, these days we've built a list of 300,000 like companies that we've got in a, in a database somewhere and about 25,000 of those we deem to be kind of like good fit software companies. On every single one of those software companies we collected a ton of data up front on who they're selling to, their technographics, where their traffic's coming from, are they B2B or B2C and collected these really rich profiles and tons and tons and tons of software companies. Where from? Like any suggestions? So in the early days we built, uh, bought lots of lists, sorry. Okay. And we then started to do things like scrape like directories of software companies. You often do this stuff manually through people to begin with before realizing it's worth operationalizing and investing in, in the infrastructure. 
Um, but these days we, we build such rich profiles on these companies before we've even spoken to them that we can deliver them really, really hyper relevant messaging in that first touch outreach. So if I see you as a software company and getting 15,000 visits from China every month, but for your technographic data, I see that you don't support Chinese Yuan and Alipay. If I send you an email saying that you get 15,000 visits from China every month, you don't have you know, Alipay and Yuan, yeah. this is the impact that it had for someone like you in adding them. Can I show you what this looks like on your checkout? It, it feels to that customer like you've done hours and hours of research on their business can really help them understand what, what you can do for them. In reality, you've really operationalized that process. And um, that really helped us scale outbound in what felt like this really personal, human-driven way. But in reality, was just data at scale. Got it. Makes sense, yeah. And is there anything you're doing now which you wish you knew back then or implemented or anyone who's trying? I mean, that seems like an incredible strategy. I think even companies that are kind of like mid-sized now are still trying to figure that part out. Mm -hmm. The fact you had it at the start. But is there anything you're doing right now? It's like wish we did this two, three years ago. Yeah, I think a, a good general rule is that I have and, and push on myself is like, you should probably look back on yourself every six uh, six months ago and, and like be frustrated about how little you knew and how like rubbish you were. Like it's a general like yeah. rule that I have for all of our exec teams, like put yourself under that pressure. Um, so, so many things, quite frankly. Um, I think the thing- But what, what do you think was the most pivotal thing that you've done recently that perhaps yeah, you could have implemented in the uh, early days. I think we found we were outbound sales from for a long time. Um, we invested in marketing quite late in our journey and probably should have done that much earlier, uh, both on brand and demand generation. Um, and the thing, we haven't invested in brand, I think, enough and early enough, and we're doing a lot more now. And recently, we'll be announcing we've hired an amazing CMO that I'm really excited about. Um, what impact is the marketing having now in the business? Uh, an awful lot and, and right now it's very much on the demand generation piece but I'm really excited about the influence they're going to have on things like product marketing um, but like we take people's payments and handle like regulation and liabilities for them so brand is incredibly important because you want to trust in, in these people we're literally handling your entire business's livelihood and this is something we haven't invested enough in but in working with a lot larger customers now I'm seeing how important that is and um, that when you go through the door, they, they know who you are and you're not just asking to take their entire revenue and put it through your platform. Um, but Mark, what we thought we were really good at, as I was discussing earlier, was this like demand generation piece that we did on our own and built all this infrastructure. And I don't think we recognized early enough how powerful it would be if Martin also had a hold of that data and how they could use that to do things like ABM on the same sets of customers that we're running sell sequences to, for example. So I think because we had a lack of marketing expertise in the organization, we didn't really know how we could utilize that or it augment a lot of the things that we were already doing. We just thought we kind of had it solved, which is really contrary to the way I like us to think, which is like be self-critical, constantly improve. Um, we probably should have worked that stuff out probably a little bit earlier. Got it. Um, but I'm very excited for CMO to be joining. Good. Yeah. Um, and you grew to, well, you added 100 staff members in 2018. Yeah. What impact did that have on you, your business, service, culture? Yeah, a colossal impact is, is the answer in, in every sense of the word. Um, big things. I don't think, one, we didn't even recognize that was weird until people were like, how many people did you have in 2018? Yeah, we told me, I was like, Jesus. You just, you just yeah. kind of get on with it, it's very strange. Yeah. yeah. And this is what I mean about the self-reflection, which would probably be quite helpful. Um, but yeah, a, a colossal impact. I think I didn't recognize or predict the impact it would have on having more new people in the building than old. Um, it had some really fun 
like and crazy impacts like we knocked down the wall in our office twice to like extend into the next awesome. yeah. next office and then we ran out of space there and then rented an office up the road and bought 120 scooters so people could scoot between the two offices and save time between meetings only for someone to break their wrist like two weeks into that process oh, no. they signed waiters it was <laughs> um, so like, there, there was some fun stuff um but i think the, the biggest and hardest thing for me was knowledge share probably I think we quite early on and were educated on because this isn't something we knew about things like value fit interviews and how important that was and if we got the right people in the room um, and their values were aligned with the group of 20 30 people that we had um, you could work things out I think we, we were okay at that we're constantly getting better and really understanding how things like culture evolve as your, as your business gets bigger um, but the knowledge share piece is something that was very difficult and something we're still working out, I think. And yeah. um, if all the knowledge is in 20 heads and you're about to add 100 to that, the impact it has on those 20 heads productivity uh, is pretty extreme and we're still, I wish we were better at knowledge share. And I think today. you do right now that's made a difference in knowledge share. Do you do stand-ups or do you like, have Slack or? Yeah, uh, we try loads of stuff. So we, we, we use Slack certainly, different teams have different cadences for stand-ups and weekly meetings for sure, which, which are all really helpful. Um, we have like company all hands, we have lunchtime learnings every, every single Tuesday. There's really this culture of learning that I've been kind of bagging on about. To the extent where like people still have to work just to learn things like Python just because they're interested in it. Um, but it's still never enough. Like we're in this, we're in this, we like we're in this market that's like evolving the whole time, and we've got a product that's constantly being iterated on, and we're constantly getting bigger and better customers, and there's always more to learn. So I, maybe maybe it's just my obsessive nature to get better at something. We're, which we've tried to use things like uh, wikis. Um, but managing that and ownership over the content in there and keeping it up to date is really hard. So I want to work this out. And if people are really good at it, please reach out to me. Because I think there's a big plug there for anyone who has a good solution, right? For sure, sell to, me. sell to me. Sell to me. I think if you grow that fast and then trying to implement new technology, mm-hmm. it's, it's just it's gonna be really really difficult, yeah. right? It's just like so many people, so many things going on. Here's a, like a tool on top of it to help out. It's just gonna be that, difficult. That's so. a great point, actually. Yeah. Like during that process, not only did we hire 100 people, we moved to Salesforce. I finally gave in and we moved there because it was the right thing to do at the time. Yeah. We added outreach. We completely re-architected the Salesforce implementation we had like twice and like change management during times of already all like already a ton of chaos are like difficult and I've learned a lot about change management as well and, and how you can make that more of a success because um, it's easy to re- be nimble and realign a whole group of 20 people actually uh, it might not feel like it but when you're trying to change the behavior of a hundred at a time it's a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. um, so what's next for Paddle? What's the plans now for, let's say, 2020 or the next few years? Yeah. Um, so long, long term, we're incredibly ambitious. Um, we literally want the thing that every single software company does when launching, basically. Everyone right now goes to AWS to handle their like tech infrastructure. We want Paddle to be the next thing that they implement to handle their entire kind of, I guess, business infrastructure, the way in which they're going to sell that product and go to market. That's like the long, long term, you know, crazy ambition. Um, Shorter term in 2020. Um, the thing I'm most focused on is I'm going to be launching at US office in New York, um, putting myself through this whole process all over again, yeah. albeit hopefully with some accelerated learnings, having made lots of mistakes uh, <laughs> during the, the first time round. Um, so I'm quite focused on that at the moment. 
Awesome. Well, hopefully in a year from now we can talk about all of those learnings. Yeah, having a few knowledge at Pocane across two offices. Yeah, yeah no, it would be great. Good. Um, any final advice for mainly founders listening, but people who are looking to go into sales within a startup? Or? Um, I think it's awesome, like genuinely, like it's really, really hard. Um, but if you love working in an environment whereby you're going to deliver actual value to customers, you get the opportunity to work some stuff out, you get the opportunity to codify a bunch of processes, meet and work with and sell to a bunch of an, incre an incredible community of intelligent people, like this is probably a great way to do it. I think um, in in Britain, certainly, I think sales maybe doesn't have the best uh, cultural like perception. I think it's kind of wrong compared when you compare that to places like the States. Mm -hmm. And we have incredible consultative value-based salespeople here in the UK, just because I think our nature and like a little ambition I have for the UK and, and sales folks in the UK specifically is that by the time like I stop doing this, God knows when that's going to be, I really want to dispel this myth that there are better like sales folks in different regions of the world because there's incredible talent everywhere. And like, I, I find it really difficult when like members of our board or senior folks are just like, oh, you're gonna be like, the, the talent over here is like so much better. Like there's so much better sales people here. I'm like, there's great sales people everywhere. Yeah, there is. Like we, we just need to invest in them yeah. and give these people time and opportunity. Cool. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all of the commitment and uh, definitely kind of like how open you were and vulnerable you were to kind of give them um, your information away, kind of knowledge, learnings. Failures, um, all the best for next year, mate. Show any time, thank you. Good.